0: This is a 3CR podcast. And this is published or not. There are ageless tales that relate moral and ethical concerns. Robbie Arnott has tapped into this genre with his latest work, The Rain Heron. So, Robbie, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Now, the rainbird is a mythical, legendary creature, as this excerpt testifies. Suddenly the bird spritzed into a cloud of vapour which floated towards the glass. As it approached, the boy leaned in, his nose inches from the glass just before it met the barrier. The vapour slowly reformed into the bird in a watery construction I'd never seen in such detail and landed on a mound of dirt a metre or two from the edge of the enclosure. It cocked its head and fixed the boy with a curious stare. What is the rain heron, and what does it represent? The rain heron is a mythical
1: creature I've completely made up for this book, and it's kind of a totemic animal that can control weather, particularly storms and rain and floods. And in the world of this novel, a lot of people believe that it has something to do with humanity and whether or not it's real or not, and they wish that, and they pray to it, and they wish that it could help them. But as the book goes on, we realise while this is a completely fantastical creature, it really doesn't care about people at all and it only exists in order to kind of look after itself.
0: But it also sort of represents the environment in some ways if we look at it in an allegorical level.
1: Yeah, it's a very environmental animal and it does contain themes like that but when I was writing it I wanted to make sure that it could work as that allegory and as that kind of comment about nature but also that it's an animal in and of itself it's not just something to further a story I wanted it to feel like a tangible creature.
0: Well yes it has qualities of a creature it's vengeful and violent at times but also magical but you begin the story it's part oh, almost like a, a prologue that almost taps into a sort of Chinese fable type feel about it which is totally mythical uh and that sets us up this leads us well, into part one where we meet Wren, who is trying to live in isolation as there has been a military coup of sorts somewhere in the background but she is challenged with the prospect of trying to survive and she ends up being tortured what is happening to her
1: Well, she's fled from a coup uh, in this country, this unnamed country, and she's just trying to live out in the mountains by trading and hunting and and really just wants to be left alone. And what happens is a group of soldiers come to the mountain and they've been tasked with capturing a rain heron, which no one really knows if it exists or not. But the leader of those soldiers believes that if anyone knows where the rain heron will be, it's Wren, the lady living on the mountain.
0: The person charged with leading this expedition is Lieutenant Harker, and she's very methodical in how she uh, tackles Wren, shall we say, into trying to find the bird.
1: Yeah, she's pragmatic to the point of uh, terror, I think. She. Uh really will let leave no stone unturned to complete her mission. And in many ways, I, I try to create her as a rather complex character who, who does treat Wren quite awfully um, and does terrible things, but she seems to believe she's almost a lesser of two evils. What erupts is this almost cat and mouse game of, of Lieutenant Harker believing the animal exists and believing that Wren can take her to it and Wren insisting that she's never heard of it and that she doesn't know what they're talking about.
0: But Ren virtually has to give in because she's taken to the point of death.
1: Yeah, she's completely broken by Harker and these soldiers, and it's it's a really cruel and brutal moment where we're we're meant to be thinking about this, you know, wonderful, amazing, violent creature. But the real violence and horror that's occurring is what people are doing to each other.
0: Now, all of a sudden, we get into part two, and we seem to be in a different location, a different place. We're in a harbour village. And it's almost realistic, but where we think we're perhaps going forward in time, we're actually going back. And in this town, we meet Zoe, who is learning the art of farming squid for their ink. And this is almost believable, whereas the rain heron was mythical. This has a a sense of reality almost about it. How does one milk... A squid for their ink.
1: Well, the ink is harvested in, in this story by uh, people sacrificing some of their own blood to summon the ink to the to squid to the surface. And once they've fed on the human blood, they kind of go into a tranquil state from which the ink can be almost milked from them. And this probably speaks a lot, not so much to uh, anything purely allegorical too much, but almost my my weird imagination and my uh, short attention span in wanting to write interesting things rather than being a serious, dour writer who who just keeps a, a straightforward plot going.
0: Well, what they have in this village is a sort of local knowledge that enables them to live a quite comfortable life. But again, here too, we have somebody coming into this setting and intervening, trying to commercialise what is taking place here, the farming of the squid for their ink. And again, you're putting forward a message about commercialism?
1: Yeah, potentially. We, we have a character arrive who's almost an agent of what he believes is kind capitalism. And he also displays a kind of relentlessness into wanting to modernise this quite primitive squid inking industry. And he doesn't really take no for an answer when no one's very interested in him. Even though to his mind, he's a polite and calm and friendly person, he seeks to assert himself over this industry and try and modernise it, despite the fact that they don't want anything to do with him. And he doesn't take no for an answer. And again, that's very similar to part one, where we see people not taking no for an answer and, and trying to dominate the natural world rather than work with it.
0: And in the process, this man destroys the industry, the very thing he wants to promote is effectively destroyed by his action.
1: Yeah, he displays a large amount of arrogance in just assuming that he knows best because he comes from what he believes is an educated, civilised background. And there's a callous disregard for other ways of thinking or other ways of interacting with the
0: world. Now, this leads to part three, and this is where the two stories do merge. But I don't want to give that away I think the reader and the listener should find out that for themselves how these two stories connect but what we have is Lieutenant Harker who has found the rain heron who has been attacked by the bird and has had an eye gouged out and she virtually loses control and the leadership starts to waver I'm just wondering, are you saying anything here about leadership or purpose or direction? Not necessarily. Um, I'm not one of those novelists
1: who comes to the page thinking, right, I've got a message, I've got to really hit something the reader over the head with what I want them to understand here. I more wanted to explore her character because, as I was writing her, I found it quite interesting. And and what does someone do when a defining feature of their personality is taken away from them? Which is, in her case, is her Certainty and her confidence and her sure-footedness. And when she's maimed and when she loses this aspect of control, I wanted to explore how then would she react to that scenario and and what would that do to the dynamic of the people she's with, which also includes a large, watery, magical bird. Um, This probably all sounds completely ridiculous, (laughs) but the story does kind of make sense, I believe.
0: The potential there, like all allegorical tales, is for the reader to delve into it and find their own meaning as well as part of it uh, which is the beauty of what you've done. So we have Lieutenant Harker charged with getting this bird back to the military base but this military group seemed to be a very vague amorphous group and she doesn't quite get the bird to the military leaders as such but she does deliver it to a depot. And here we get into part four, where she finds a form of redemption. Would that be correct? Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say
1: it's redemption, but she does start to realise the extent of, the, of what she's done and who she's become and see that she's not always behaved in the right way, even though she believes she has in the past. I, I wanted her to be a really morally grey character, unlikable but, but interesting And so I didn't think she deserved a really proper redemption arc towards the end of the book because I don't think her actions have warranted that. But I wanted what happened to her to be just perpetually interesting. And so that's where the story goes from there without giving too much anything away.
0: She finds, well, she finds love, but when you compare how she was at the beginning of the book, that absolute cruelty, it's a transformation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And she's not sure how to take it on either, because she's one of those people who doesn't really think about themselves too much. She's very busy, outcome focused, and doing what she believes is the right thing to do and the best course of action to take. So when she's given an opportunity to slow down and evaluate a few things... Yeah, her life does change quite a lot.
0: You've also mentioned outcomes there, but some of the outcomes are almost intangible in the fact that the bird is never brought to the military leadership, which was the whole purpose in the first place. The leaders of this vague military force that have staged this coup are nowhere to be seen. People don't seem to have any purpose.
1: Yeah, in this novel, there's a coup in the background. and And I flirted a lot with exploring that coup a lot more and talking about the military and the political background. But it wasn't relevant to the story that the book was telling. And it became a lot of padding and exposition. And then I realised I was writing about a military political system, which I just didn't want to do. And I didn't think it enhanced this story of the rain heron and random Lieutenant Harker. So she takes the bird to an animal sanctuary. And the idea is that once everything blows over with this coup, then the generals will have a bit of a purpose for it. But they never get to that because the country starts disintegrating. Because as we see with most coups, They don't really take and hold for all that long. So this huge, big, grand, dangerous mission they go on ends up being almost redundant, much like all of the violence that they commit and is committed upon them. It doesn't actually get anyone anywhere.
0: So it changes the focus in many ways from achieving an objective to addressing the individual and their own motivations and action.
1: Yeah, it does in a way. And it becomes a much more individualistic tale rather than... A set of living and working within a large structure because everything falls apart.
0: Well, Robbie, we're going to have to end the interview there, but it's been a fascinating discussion. The mythical rainbird that can transform itself into a vapour and then back into a bird. We have the curiosity of farming squid for their ink, but the book is called The Rain Heron, the author Robbie Arnott, and it's a text publishing release. So thank you very much, Robbie. Oh, thank you very much, David. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you, David. Now it's time for me to chat with my author. Beginner writers are often told to write about something they know and Rita Therese certainly has done that. Welcome to Published or Not, Rita Therese.
3: Thank you so much for having me this morning, Jan. It's really lovely to meet you.
2: Actually, you're not a beginner writer, are you? What else, where else is your writing published?
3: Um, I actually started writing for a street magazine when I was 18 and then um, through that I got some work writing for Vice Australia. I wrote for Penthouse Australia for a while and then I went on to um, start my memoir in I think 2018 um, after some of my mini mini books or zines were sold online and they fell into the lap of a publishing house.
2: Nice to know. So was the subject matter that you wrote about in the zines, was, is that linked to what this book is about?
3: Yeah, so they started out when I went to AA um, and, you know, I had a lot of free time and I hadn't written in a few years. It was just this really great outlet. And then to um, so the zines, are, I think like a very raw and very unpolished form of the book. So people who have bought them, We'll probably see a few stories I've already read before, but better
2: formed, I think. This debut novel is called Come, which has a variety of meanings. Of course, there's the sexual reference. And from 18 years old to your 21st birthday, you journeyed through an industry. Is it correct to call it an industry?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's definitely an industry. It's a it's a profession and the oldest profession in the world and it's a form of labour. So
2: yes, definitely an industry. Become also, apart from the sexual connotations, has that meaning of coming towards someone. And I don't want to talk about you going towards a client, but towards the community that you really felt relaxed in. And that was the first job as topless waitressing. Yeah,
3: I think it's come at a lot of different meanings. I mean, obviously it's quite a salacious title. So um, being quite business-minded, the first thing I want is someone to pick it up. And then from then on, I want people to engage with that title in a way where they're thinking about what else it means. And that is about coming and going through life, death, love, relationships. It's about coming into yourself. It's about kind of the process and, and the transcendence of, of growing older and shedding off layers and figuring
2: out who you are, yeah. I certainly um, got a lot more knowledge. I know lots more things about full-service work, brown showers and cream pies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I definitely don't hold back. <laughs> no, you did not. Sex work is often linked with drugs and you certainly came a long way with that between from your 18th... Years to your 21st. You went from Red Bull and cigarettes to cocaine, mollies, joints, jungle juice, Dexies, poppers. And you mentioned AA before, but I'd I'd never heard that there was a crystal meth anonymous group.
3: Yeah, um, there's all sorts of different um, sobriety groups. And I think it is important to take away from the book that I did write about drugs in a way that I felt was not. to to tarnish them or to say that they are inherently a bad thing or an evil thing because I don't believe that and I do think there is a huge amount of stigma that drug users face and I don't believe that's fair. Um, That said I was using a lot of drugs and stuff and and doing them in a way to escape a lot of the anxiety and the pain that I was in and it's it's not cohesive to where I'm at now in my life but that doesn't mean that i think drug users are bad or i think drugs are bad and that, that's what i tried to write about in my book was to highlight the very funny and enjoyable and fantastic moments that happened
2: when i was high because <laughs> if it wasn't fun we wouldn't do them you know you, you also write uh, the kind of sex that you like best you fantasize about magical lesbian transcendental and otherworldly sex and it, that sounds like a topic for Pornography, but you also explain how difficult it is to make pornography.
3: Yes. It turns out, being autistic and doing porn is probably not a great combination. You know, um, had I known that at, at eighteen, I might have understood why I was so freaked out when I went on set. But yeah, it, it's probably pretty funny in hindsight. Maybe there's a maybe there's a uh, subcategory of um, undiagnosed autistic women in pornography,
2: having struggling to make eye contact. You, you gave us a whole chapter on whore beauty. How to shave your pubic area? How to treat thrush and pimples and hair, hemorrhoids? How to prep for anal sex? And what to do when you've got your period? I, I thought about this as a tradesperson. You know, you you have all the skills, and a tradesperson goes off to work with a toolbox. But you, you've got all the knowledge, and you go off to work with your handbag. The contents of your handbag are just amazing.
3: Yeah, it's like a Mary Poppins bag. It's one of the reasons why I think most working girls, some of them I know you know, you you finally make enough money and you're like, I'm going to buy myself this beautiful designer bag and then you go in and you... I remember being at Louis Vuitton and I was like, oh, can I have a look at that one, please? And I started just pulling things out of my handbag to see how much shit I could fit inside it. They were like, okay. I'm like, hey, I'm about to spend two and a half grand on this thing. I need to make sure I can fit, you know, a giant tub of baby wipes in it. So, <laughs> you know, you want a dainty little handbag, unfortunately, that's
2: not going to fly when you have to go to work. Absolutely. The, the, the writing was fascinating. You give the starkness of a, of a physical encounter and written so dramatically and then you'd finish with a comment that was, oh, full of dark humour and you, that juxtaposition between your writing I thought was fantastic very good writing. And you also wonder about the human condition. So that's why you're doing philosophy as well?
3: Yes, I did a philosophy degree um, and I got to the end and I was like, well, I know nothing. Um, I think philosophy is a fantastic balm to the kind of bullshit self-help thing that happens that you know people kind of spin a lot of psychological skills and I found philosophy to to answer a lot more of the questions I had that were really existential and that that I think that is woven into the book I um I in hindsight I think because I was writing so heavily about trauma I wasn't able to fully delve into more philosophical aspects but I think if I wrote a second book I would like to do that
2: the first part of this book is called sex the second part is called love and you write about what you did you were looking for kindness and uh, interest and desire and your first real boyfriend was Todd did you find mm-hmm. kindness interest and desire with him
3: I think um, when I wrote that chapter about Todd, I remembered this piece of advice that my friend gave me. And um, oftentimes I think it's really easy to mix the abuse and the love into one kind of swirling pot and to not separate them and see them differently. And that was what I had to unpack when I wrote that story. That was a very abusive relationship. But mm. there was also love there as well too. That is quite a complex thing. But it's, it's not a relationship dynamic I'm interested in being in now. But I feel like there's a reason why you end up with an abuser. And it's not because, you know, they clobber you over the head at your first dinner with them. There's, there's love
2: as well, you know. Mm. I'm going to ask Rita Therese to read a, a bit from her book, come page 53 and in this Rita explains just the type of man she likes
3: I don't like pretty boys I like my men rough around the edges I like noses that have been broken and chest hair I like calloused hands and I like them to smell like aftershave and cousins imperial leather soap I like slightly crooked teeth I like
2: flannel shirts
3: that smell worn in
2: and in another part of the book this is a quote panty dropping weakness is elastic sided rm williams boots (laughs) interesting (laughs) so we had first part sex second part love and the third part is death at the very beginning of the book you learn about your brother dying this was james but he wasn't the only brother you'd lost why was Peter so special?
3: Um, my brother Peter was my best friend. And I think that was also a difficult thing to write about in the book. And it is a, it, it, it adds a layer of, I think, complexity to the book in that we grieve differently for people and we grieve differently varying on their relationship. And, you know, what an excellent sociological study of grieving, but to lose two brothers, you know, and to understand that grief is more powerful And more overwhelming and to see it play out depending on your relationship with a person and it's a question that I grappled with myself why didn't I feature James more heavily but my relationship to him was different and my brother Peter he and I were incredibly close so I think that's why he was at the forefront of my mind and it probably also hints to the reader that there's grieving and the trauma hasn't been fully processed or fully acknowledged as well too.
2: Do you think Your own personal grieving is what brought you to self-harming and going on those hunger strikes and stopping eating times?
3: When I wrote the book and I was going through the process of Of understanding a lot of trauma. Yeah, my eating disorder became really strong again. And um, as, as things do, when our lives become out of control, we turn to what we can control. And food and being small and being tiny is this way of taking up as little space as possible. And I think that was the core reason of going through and you know rewriting about rape and death and all these intense things I began to slowly stop eating and I actually looked back, had some photos that I took of myself at the time and you know I can really see the psychological effect that the book took on me Um, and then you know luckily I had a great partner and he sort of prompted me to be like I don't know if this is a healthy coping mechanism yes I mean I don't self-harm anymore and I haven't in years Um, that was also a side effect of having autism that was undiagnosed is not understanding emotions so Obviously, you would turn to self-harm to feel things. So, no, I don't think that I have. I never turned to those things when I was deeply grieving. But when I had to revisit, that was probably a, a challenging time for me to not indulge in sort of negative behaviours.
2: To finish on a lighter note, you talked about money and sometimes you had a lot of it and sometimes you had none. And I couldn't believe that there was an ebook about out there on how to get rich stripping
3: that was a really great book and but it it wasn't so much about like you know
2: get quick
3: rich book it was about teaching you how to make the most money when you were working and as a stripper it's an incredibly hard job because when you come onto into that club you are already at a negative because you've got to pay your house fee which could be a hundred dollars So already you're at a deficit so, you need to try and reach a money goal every night. And I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest jobs I've ever had to do. And learning to, to be good at it took me a lot of time. But yeah, the ebook was great. It taught me a lot of things. And I highly recommend that if someone wants to do, Something in this industry, they look for a reputable ebook, and they're usually written by an ex-worker as well, too.
2: Well, I, I also think this book is quite a bit of a, a, a manual in what to do and and what to put in your handbag. Right. I said at the beginning that Rita Torres wrote about what you knew, and you started your working life as a very successful lingerie salesperson, but this book is a lot more interesting. So the book is Come. It's published by Alan and Unwin. It's bold, brave and darkly funny. Thank you very much, Rita. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, Jan, that takes us out
2: for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with.
0: Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week.
2: See you then. Well.
0: Let's talk then. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.